Well, thanks again to Zach and the team. And for those of you joining us for the first time today, I especially want to welcome all of you. My name's Chad, and I'm the pastor of New Life Wichita. And we launched this church just over three years ago because life and faith can be complicated, especially these days, and we just want to help. In fact, please be sure to join us again next week for Mother's Day. We've got some really fun plans and a very special talk where I will unpack that a bit more in a message entitled, I Love Jesus, But I Cuss a Little. And you don't want to miss that. Uh, but we're a young church that's working hard to make a difference in tangible ways to help meet physical and even financial needs in our community through generosity. Uh, for example, in less than a week, we've had $1,200 that's been given to our COVID relief fund. And right off, we've been able to give significant help to a single mom that had been laid off from her job. And we'll be serving the under-resourced in our community through Project Laundry again in two weeks. Uh, so we're committed to love like Jesus and helping with those kinds of opportunities. But because faith and living out our faith can be complicated, it's one of the reasons we offer things like this weekend experience, usually in person, but for now gathering together online because we're not designed to do life or faith alone. And most of us are realizing that more and more as the weeks pass. And over the past few weeks, we've been addressing something that if you have any belief in God, it's something all of us experience at times. And it's frustration with God about unanswered prayers and sometimes feeling that God isn't paying attention. And this is a common experience. And one of the things that we've been discovering is that God's lack of cooperation is not an argument for or against his existence, his presence, or his activity. And we've said emotionally it seems like a valid argument because many of us have chosen to believe in a God that doesn't exist. The first week we talked about bodyguard God the God who doesn't allow bad things to happen to good people, the God that will protect you from all things harmful. But Jesus is the ultimate proof that that God does not exist. Last week, we talked about on-demand God, the God who responds to fair and selfless requests the way that we would. Uh, we could be disappointed or doubt God because he doesn't operate like a genie in a bottle when we ask for what we ask for is fair and reasonable. We just assume God would respond the way we do, but the problem is that God has never existed. Today, another character of God I hope that we give up is, for lack of a better term, boyfriend God, the God whose presence is always felt, the God who's so close that you just feel him all the time, which means that when you don't feel him, you assume he's not there, but boyfriend God doesn't exist. So today, I want to start with a question that all of us have asked at one point or another, and the question is this, why doesn't God do something about, and then fill in the blank? The interesting thing is you don't have to think very hard to come up with a, a that to fill in the blank, do you, right? It's like, God, why don't you do something about that, whatever it is? Some of you are quarantined these days with a that. Some of you work for or with a that. Or maybe it's an illness, or maybe it's a prodigal son or daughter or grandson or granddaughter. Daughter. Maybe that is a, a financial struggle or what's going on around in our city or our country or world. It's like, God, why don't you do something about that? And when you're in a situation where you're desperately wanting God to do something about whatever it is, especially when it's personal, it's a big deal, isn't it? And what we're discovering is that you can maintain hope and faith and continue to believe and continue to press forward, even though there are things that you just don't understand why God doesn't do something about it. And as a reminder, this series is about those dark moments when you're struggling, when you feel like you're just hanging on there and you're wondering, can I continue to trust God and trust that he is involved in my circumstances? This series is about discovering the God of Jesus, the God that allowed people who he loves so very much to experience similar things 
that you've experienced, and he was still God. He still loved them, and he still loves and cares about you. And again, in some ways, this series isn't emotionally satisfying because it doesn't change any of your circumstances, but it does change your perspective. And the awesome thing is that Jesus actually created a moment so that he could show us how we could and should continue to believe and have hope when God can't be felt and when he seems to be indifferent, unaware, or absent. The story is found in John chapter 11, and I highly recommend you look it up later. And I want you to pretend like you've never heard this story before. Because if you grew up in church, when I read the first line, you already know the end of the story. But when John wrote this, the people reading it for the first time didn't know the end of the story. And there's so much drama and emotion that we can miss because we know the end. And you and I are in this story, so we dare not miss it. It's so important. So this is John chapter 11, famous story, but let's try to experience it for the first time together. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. So Lazarus and his two sisters lived just a few miles from Jerusalem. And then John gives us this parenthetical explanation that meant a lot to the people who heard the story for the first time. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. This was such an amazing, well-known event in the first century that the reader would have been like, oh, that Mary, because everybody knew this amazing story about the woman pouring costly perfume on Jesus' feet and wiping it with her hair. The passage continues. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, again, Jesus is only a day and a half's walk, but imagine being known like this. Obviously, Jesus loves everybody, but Jesus loves these three so much that all they had to say was, the guy that you love, he's sick. Like, that's a lot of love. And after having seen Jesus heal strangers, seen lines of people lined up, healing, 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 they delivered this message to Jesus. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. And then he introduces a new and uncomfortable category for us. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. It's like, what? Sickness for God's glory? God, why is Lazarus sick? It's for my glory. But sick is a bad thing. No, this sickness is for my glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. So Jesus is presenting an uncomfortable new way of thinking. Jesus is about to give us light in our darkness and hope where you just don't think there is any hope. And, and knowing that the story is about to take a confusing term, John gives us another line of commentary. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. John, why are you telling us this? Because based on what happens next, the reader could easily conclude that Jesus didn't love any of them. So John goes, before I tell you what happens next, you need to know this. He didn't just know them, he loved them. Yet, When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. John, you just told me he loved these three, so surely he's going to go to him right away. But instead, he stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Let's go back towards Bethany. But Rabbi, they said, they said a short while ago, the Jews were, they tried to stone you, and yet you're going to go back? Implication, Jesus, when the Jews tried to throw stones at you, sometimes they miss and hit us. So apparently they'd forgotten about Lazarus. And then Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Yeah. 
I mean, we're just talking about getting stoned and not in the Colorado way. What, what are we talking about, about? And in this moment, they have no idea what he's talking about. But when you get to the end of the story and go back and read the whole book of John, it's evident what Jesus is teaching them. Are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. Is, it is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And it's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? And what he's talking about is opportunity. That every half a day when the sun's up, there's opportunity to do things. But when the sun goes down, you lose your opportunity. Jesus is saying, guys, I'm leaving this earth soon. And when I do, a light goes out and you'll be back in darkness except for the light I leave with you. So you need to learn all you can while you can. So get off your butts, come and follow me. Follow me to Judea, and I know you're afraid about what's going to happen to you, but if you don't follow me, you're going to miss the opportunity of a lifetime because I'm about to give you a light that's going to serve you the rest of your life and serve those who are to come in the future, and that's you, and that's me. After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him. And his disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. And again, their concern isn't Lazarus. Their concern is rocks being thrown at them. But Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he just told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And then Jesus makes possibly the most insensitive statement in the Bible. Jesus turns to his closest followers and he says, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there. You knew he was going to die? Yes, you mean you let Mary and Martha nurse their brother until he died and you knew he was going to die and you didn't go to him on purpose? Yes. And you're glad we weren't there for you to save him, save the one you love? Yes. Okay, Jesus, what could be so important that you would allow the one that you love to die? And Jesus said, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Okay, so Jesus, seriously, you'd allow someone to die just to bring us to some sort of fuller faith in you? Yes. And for some of us, that can wreck our theology because somehow we've embraced boyfriend God that I can always feel or a name it, claim it idea. And if I have enough faith or I pray hard enough or I'm obedient enough that God will show up and just address the challenges in my life in a timely manner. And yet Jesus creates a situation where we could understand his God, the one true God who, like it or not, often doesn't do that thing that we think God ought to do when we think he ought to do it. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, he's dead, the Jesus are going to stone Jesus, they're going to stone us, let's just go, it'll be a mass funeral, let's just also go that we may die with him. So Jesus' personal first century Eeyore. Now on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And we need to pause and understand the drama of this moment, because just days prior, Lazarus had been dying without drugs, pain relief, or hospice. He was in utter misery for days, if not longer. And to some extent, you can imagine yourself in this, because most likely in your life, you've had your own version of this. In the days prior, Mary and Martha were kneeling beside Lazarus, wiping the sweat from his brow and his misery, going, don't worry, we sent for Jesus. Jesus is on his way. We got word to Jesus. The messenger came back, said he got the message right to Jesus and the disciples. They'll be here. Jesus will come. 
Mary, you go stand on the road and you watch. You tell us when you see Jesus. If he's not here soon, we'll switch. I'll go down the road, tell people that Jesus is coming. They don't need to worry. We've seen him heal strangers. We've seen him heal Gentiles. We've seen him heal people that are part of the Roman Empire. We have absolute faith Jesus will be here. And they waited. And they waited. And the community waited and they watched. And Lazarus died and still no Jesus. Mary, Martha, we have to bury your brother. We, we can't bury him. We know Jesus. He, we sent word to him. We know we got, he got the message. He'll be here. Mary, Martha, we, we have to bury your brother. And they most likely participated in wrapping him, not much like Jesus would be wrapped not long after. They put him in a tomb. They roll a stone in front of it, and they seal it. And they began to mourn and still know Jesus. And isn't that where we live sometimes, where God seems unaware, indifferent, or absent? You see, the unsettling thing is we needed this situation. The disciples needed this. We needed Lazarus to die. And on his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Four days is important. In the first century, they believed that the spirit of a person hovered over the dead body for three days. And because of what happens as the body lays exposed to the elements, the face begins to change. They believed that in four days, the spirit would look at the body and realize, I can't re-inhabit that body, and it would leave. So four days after Lazarus had been entombed, when there was no hope, even in their superstitious way of thinking that he would, could come back to life, then Jesus arrives. And we can relate to the disciples in this moment because can you imagine how embarrassing it was for the disciples to follow Jesus into Bethany? When, with everyone staring and saying, what an insult. He helped and healed strangers, even servants of Rome. Yet he didn't rescue the one he loves. He didn't even come to the funeral. And four days after he's been buried, Jesus dares to show his face. And hasn't there been times where you felt you couldn't explain why God allows certain things or allowed something to happen in your own life, and you almost feel embarrassed to try and defend him, but, but deep down you're just as confused? When, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Now, why do you think Mary stayed home? Why wouldn't Mary rush out to see Jesus? What is she feeling? She's mad. Jesus, you could have. You should have. You, you didn't. We gave you every opportunity. You love strangers and Romans, but what about us? You love Gentiles, but not your own people that you supposedly love? When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, and this is what we say to God. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have showed up and answered my prayer, my reasonable and selfless request, my brother would not have died. This is your fault. This is your doing. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And listen to Jesus' response. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know. I know. I know. See, this is that moment where people try to comfort you, say he's in a better place, she's in a better place, you'll see them again. And Martha thinks that's what, that's what Jesus is doing. So she replies, yes, I know he will rise again in the resurrection of the last day, whatever that looks like. I've heard you talk about it, but Jesus, please don't give me a theology lesson. You should have been here. And then Jesus looks at this angry, confused, grieving woman who thought she knew who Jesus was. And he says to her what he says to you and me. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Martha, you think the resurrection is an event and it is, and you think it's about the future and it is, but Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. 
And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. And then he asked the question that he asked each one of us. It was easy to believe when you were six. It was a question that was reasonable when you were 12. But it got a little more difficult when you were 22 or 35 or 45. And life has just worked to beat the naive optimism out of you about what would life would be like. And things didn't go as planned. And now you've got, got some cuts and bruises and scars. Or you're about to bury someone you love. Or you're watching someone you love suffer. Or you just went through the most difficult period in your life. And he looks her in the eye and asks this question of her and us. Do you believe this? Do you still trust in me? Knowing that I could have stopped all of this and prevented this from happening, do you still believe I am who you thought I was, even though I've not acted like the way you thought I should act? Her response was, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. She runs back, says, Mary, you've got to go see the master. So Mary runs out to him and basically has the identical conversation with Jesus. Why didn't you get here? You could have stopped this. And John tells us when he saw her weeping and the, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he gets, was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And then he asked this question, where have you laid him? And come and see, Lord, they replied. And, and uh, heading to the tomb, John records for something that's so important. He records something that helps us understand that when you're going through the most difficult time in your life, even though God should have and could have, he do, but he doesn't, you don't even feel his presence. It's not because he's unaware, indifferent, or absent. Rather, God enters into your deepest pain even when he chooses not to do anything about it. And Jesus, though he knew exactly what was about to transpire, wept. It's like, I'm not too big to understand. I'm not too distant. I'm not too almighty to understand. When you suffer and hurt and don't understand and feel abandoned, it's if God leans in and says, I'm here. I know, I understand, and I share your pain. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But then there were others that said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Why didn't he do something about it? And then Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. Now they were already confused. Lazarus was completely dead and gone. They'd seen, they'd seen him someday in this resurrection that nobody really understood. And Jesus says, I, I, I want you to remove the stone. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there's a bad odor. For he's been in the, door, the tomb four days. The old English is, he stinketh, and he would have. And I think in light of her grief, she was just twisting the knife a bit. You didn't show up until four days after the funeral. And Jesus says to her what I think he says to you and to me. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? If you continue to trust me, continue to believe and continue to put one foot in front of the other, continue to live your life as I am who I say I am, you will catch a glimpse of my glory even in your most difficult time. So they took away the stone and then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. In other words, Jesus didn't want people to simply go, wow, Jesus. He wanted them to go, wow, Jesus and God. Jesus is like, I'm just here to reflect you, God. And it's about to happen in a big way. When he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out. His hands and feet were wrapped with strips of linen and cloth around his face. And then Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Do you know why Jesus had to say, take off the grave clothes and let him go? 
because nobody was making a move towards Lazarus. It's like, are you kidding me? It's a first century zombie apocalypse. So I imagine Jesus with a big smile on his face. He's got to go for crying out loud. Somebody help the poor guy. And therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and seen what Jesus did believed in him. Of course they did. And this story spreads like wildfire. He didn't just raise somebody who might have been a sleeper passed out. This guy had been in the tomb for four days. There is nothing Jesus can't do. So here's the question in your life. Why doesn't God do something about your blank? Why doesn't God do something about that thing in your life that's causing you struggle or pain or stress? And the answer is, we don't know. We know he can but we know sometimes he waits. If he waits, we know we can trust him in the meantime. We know that we can trust him in the meantime because he made us this promise that if you believe and continue to believe, you will eventually see the glory of God. If you don't stop believing, cue the classic journey song, if you don't stop believing, if you continue to trust and maintain hope and focus on Jesus, the one who is our ultimate example of maintaining trust when God seems unaware or indifferent or absent in the midst of the worst of the worst, in the midst of a situation you have no explanation for, Lazarus and ultimately Jesus is our proof that God is able and willing to leverage things to reveal himself to us and glorify his son and use it for your good if you continue to trust him. And again, I know this is not emotionally satisfying, but it is the thing that God has given us to hang on to in this life. In the midst of those dark times, it's a light that he would hand his disciples because he knew there would be a time when he would, they would see him arrested and tried and crucified and buried, and God would do nothing to stop it. All hope for them died in that moment. Like, God, why would you allow that? We don't know. But we do know that sometimes he waits and we know that during that time we can believe and we can have hope for greater things. In the meantime, if I continue to believe and trust, I and those around me that are watching and people on the outside are always watching, that together we may catch a glimpse of the goodness of God on this thing that I'm convinced that, I'm, that God should do something about. So when God seems unaware or indifferent or absent, you look outside your circumstances at the things that God is doing outside of your world like John the Baptist did. You lean into his grace because Paul told us his grace will be sufficient for us even though your circumstances may never change. And you patiently watch because if you continue to believe and continue to trust, eventually you will see the glory of God. Let me pray for us. God, I, I just pray for all of us because, God, there are those places and those areas where we just struggle to believe and struggle to trust that you are there and that you are involved. And I pray, Father, that you would show up in an unmistakable way and at the very least that you would give us um, a sense of peace and a courage that you are with us and that you are present and that you are aware and that you are concerned and that you care and that you are up to something bigger than we could hope or imagine. I pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.